This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, April 21st, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. Republicans in Congress are hoping to change the way medical malpractice insurance works. Some leading proposals would make it harder for plaintiffs to win malpractice suits. But what if many of the problems associated with medical malpractice could be ameliorated through contract? Walter Olson, senior fellow at the Cato Institute, comments. Way back since the 1980s, there has been the continual reports of medical malpractice premiums uh, much higher than they used to be, much higher than doctors pay elsewhere uh, outside the United States, uh, focused especially on high-risk specialties like obstetrics, uh, orthopedic surgery. And for libertarians, this has been a subject of interest for just as long. Libertarians have been writing about this. starting with, I shouldn't say starting, uh, but early on, uh, Richard Epstein, uh, known and loved by uh, libertarians who follow uh, the law schools, uh, wrote uh, a seminal piece uh, for Cato, I believe, called uh, Medical Malpractice, the Case for Contract. And I think I'd like to start there because it is still highly relevant and especially if we are not resigned to a system where the government just winds up running things as a quasi-governmental system, as um, a pessimistic view of the Obamacare episode uh, would lead us to, we ought to step back and think about how would it run in a freer society and what can we learn from that? What what elements of a freer society uh, could be preserved or even expanded uh, in an area like this? So Epstein said we need to look at it through the lens of contract, and this harkens back to the traditional libertarian celebration of uh, the uh, laissez-faire legal order that emerged sometime around the 19th century in which uh, status was replaced by contract. That's a slogan and it oversimplifies, but the idea was that uh, the uh, uh, economy and in general life was becoming open to uh, ordering more and more things through consent and through um, uh, voluntary transactions that could be planned in advance uh, with legal liability being assigned by the parties themselves in their choice rather than by the king uh, imposing his own view of where he thought that responsibility should lie. And with most types of uh, accident uh, or disappointment, it's a little easier to see how contract applies. If you are shipping a good and a certain percentage of them are broken in transit, then the two sides of the transaction can decide, okay, who's going to be responsible for for breakage. When it's a human body, it seems somehow uh, much harder because our moral intuitions are uh, you mustn't ever allow that to happen. And yet the uh, care of... Uh, a doctor or a nurse uh, is a relationship in which uh, there is negligence or oversight in some cases in which there is damage and in which there are vigorous attempts uh, by both sides to uh, figure out where blame should be placed and perhaps uh, resolve that ahead of time. Now, the whole point of contract is that the parties can decide uh, 
whether the risk falls, uh, lies where it falls, whether uh, there'll be some ritual compensation, whether there will be some more complicated type of compensation. And the objections come thick and fast as soon as you begin talking about medical malpractice through contract. And Epstein uh, anticipated and categorized them. Uh, you know, what about babies? Well, babies can't contract. What about old people? People who are near death are usually losing capacity that we would see as necessary in order to form a contract. What about emergency cases where someone is unconscious because they've been knocked down on the road and they're wheeled into an emergency room? They can't contract there, can they? And as Epstein said, at first glance, it looks as if most of the people who receive medical care might not be in a position to contract. But step back and you find that uh, most people have relationships with the health system, certainly nowadays, in which most people are covered by vast insurance plans, which have long since pre-negotiated the terms of uh, which hospital uh, is preferred to treat them, uh, you know, what types of, of measures can be taken on their behalf. Uh, it actually is would be simple and natural to make part of those prearrangements and part of those contracts, all right, what happens if something goes wrong? And you would see that in other types of contracts. Uh, you would see it in um, you know, the insurance that you had on, on you know, against your house burning down or whatever. And so one by one, uh, Epstein showed that very few of those are truly stranger cases, as uh, we call it in uh, the, the law, where the two sides have had no chance to, to uh, plan on liability. Most of them are uh, relationship cases in which there is some prior relationship. Uh, we assume that parents, for the most part, um, have an interest in the welfare of their children, such as they are, that they are able to sign contracts about the kids' welfare. We uh, believe that people who are approaching uh, the, the last stages of life generally can plan for that. Even if they cannot in the last days, they could, uh, with a year or five years, um, notice, plan on um, their relationship with a uh, nursing home or, or, or someone else caring for them in the last minute. So at any rate, all of this uh, shows how uh, a system of freedom of contract could cover most medical malpractice cases if we encouraged it. But I now have to add, of course, our legal system does not encourage you to do so. When it spies what looks too much like contract, it often steps on it and says, no, you're not allowed to contract around what we believe is appropriate medical liability on this. Uh, so forget about uh, attempts to do this through your health insurance company. Forget about attempts to uh, incorporate your um, end-of-life care uh, in ways that we don't want uh, in, in your um, uh, medical planning as, as an old person. And, uh, and Judge Richard Posner, for example, despite having some libertarian impulses, uh, is very explicit about this. He says, we, um, you know, um, medical profession knows too much. It's in too much of a position of control. We don't allow it to um, uh, contract out of this because it would get too many benefits. Uh, it would disclaim liability. We can't have that. Um, so, I would back up and ask the question, all right, why would contract lead to so much opting out? It doesn't always. Sometimes when you contract with uh, providers, they agree to shoulder quite a bit of liability for different things. But in medical cases, when people try to contract, they're usually pretty vigorous in trying to contract away from our current medical malpractice uh, litigation setup. And I would say 
there is a rationality going on there. There is a revealed preference uh, about some of the ways in which it's really not a very good system, uh, even when it is not running away as it is in the Bronx, let's say, with uh, many million-dollar cases that don't seem to have involved genuine negligence. Uh, it's still a, a type of litigation in which uh, compensation is a very poor percentage of the amount spent. Uh, you may get compensated three or four years after your uh, misadventure, uh, in which large amounts of money are spent on the process itself, in which the uncertainties are unusually high, uh, and the uh, uh, liability is resisted tooth and nail by the medical professionals involved who believe that it's a personal accusation that they are bad doctors or nurses. So you wind up with one of the least efficient areas of litigation, and you have very poor simulation of insurance because uh, when people buy insurance on the regular market, they buy it typically over well-defined um, uh, incidents. Uh, either the plane crashed or it did not, uh, and well-defined injuries, uh, which is why you can get things like disability insurance for losing your ability to earn a living, and it will pay off something pretty predictable about, you know, what were you earning? Well, we'll give you 70 percent of that. Um, what is disability? Well, that's harder to prove, and yet it's an extremely objective inquiry compared with all the different inquiries that have been made in, in a medical malpractice case, which include degree of disability, but also include six other things that are very hard to know or prove. So people back away from buying this insurance voluntarily for what I think is good reason, and yet our legal system forces it on them. It says you may not uh, opt out of getting malpractice insurance, and not only may you not opt out, but you may not uh, opt into cheaper ways of getting it. Now, what would cheaper ways be? Uh, one of the most obvious things to do would be to emulate many foreign legal systems and emulate uh, workers' compensation, for example, by scheduling damages, saying, all right, if your foot is paralyzed, it's so much, depending on how old you are and how much you were uh, earning with um, uh, by, by being on your feet. If you lose a finger, it is worth this much. That is how to keep costs down while doing a physical injury compensation system, and it's why, um, by and large, the, uh, the insurance systems that work fairly well on that converge on things like scheduled damages. Uh, it would probably also converge on uh, a seat of liability rather than suing 17 different defendants, you know, every doctor who signed off on your file. Um, if you were doing this through your health insurer, if you were doing it through your um, employer negotiating it for you, there would probably be some way of cutting out the incredibly expensive litigation over which of the 17 should pay. So the, the defense of the uh, medical malpractice system, it, to me, it keeps on shifting. If you talk about how bad it is at compensating victims, they uh, will talk about how, uh, no, it's important in uh, deterring bad medical practice. But if you look at that, it, it actually doesn't seem to be very good at deterring bad medical practice either. The, the, you search in vain for s significant differences uh, between countries or even between states uh, that are truly attributable to some of them having much uh, more uh, pro-plaintiff uh, uh, environments than, than others. It's, it's hard to find that. It's hard to find that uh, in drugs or medical devices either. And so the, um, when you talk about how it does not seem to do very well at deterring uh, bad practice, they switch to, well, it's, uh, 
requirement of natural justice. Well, you know, to me as a libertarian, natural justice points toward contract. You know, they let, let people figure out for themselves how important this is. Um, so that, that's my long-winded way around uh, um, my feeling at a distance from all of the debates about exactly um, uh, how we should uh, tinker with an already highly dysfunctional medical malpractice system. How similar are the uh, concerns about limiting uh, malpractice payouts uh, to the concerns that people have with uh, arbitration that you agree to well beforehand, given certain other contracts like credit card contracts. Yeah, there is a close resemblance between the anti-arbitration arguments in a workplace or consumer or financial uh, setting and the anti-arbitration arguments in a medical setting. Uh, you know, again, the argument throughout is uh, people will be taken advantage of. You have uh, institutions that uh, will be repeatedly going through arbitration and they can learn how to fix the system. I find that not particularly convincing in general, although I agree that it should be watched because you will, as with any system, you will sometimes find problems. But uh, most of the uh, evidence about, let's say, credit card uh, arbitration is that uh, for the large credit card providers that already live on reputation and are already jealous of their good name among consumers, they see arbitration, which often pays off uh, in a relatively predictable and satisfactory way and leaves the consumer going away happy as well worth paying the price of. They don't want an arbitration system in which every consumer loses because it's so bad for the, the, the goodwill of their customers. Now, it's different, obviously, if you are dealing with a medical institution that never is going to deal with you again because it's dealt with you at the end of life. You know, I, I would watch nursing homes more closely. I would watch a number of situations where uh, the person may not be a good judge of whether they... Uh, came away satisfied. Uh, and yet, if there's anything we've seen about the uh, development of, of healthcare institutions, it's that they are not getting smaller and more artisanal. They are um, pulling us into uh, you know, large frameworks in which we are, uh, you know, let's face it, we're being dealt with by bureaucracies. And uh, bureaucracies actually uh, whatever you think of them otherwise, they can be relatively good at things like uh, if you are a health insurer, you know, is, is the arbitration system the hospital is offering you a total joke or is it not? Well, that's something that uh, the, the employees at the headquarters of the health insurance company may be pretty good at spotting, actually. What is this so-called nod to federalism that uh, I hear Republicans continue to refer to when it comes to malpractice? Obviously, medical boards of licensure are state-issued. Uh, those are state-issued licenses for the most part. So what are they talking about? For the past 20 or 30 years, uh, Republicans and doctors have been trying to get medical malpractice reform through Congress, uh, have never succeeded. And one of the arguments uh, which has held sway, especially with uh, libertarian-minded uh, people, is this is not a federal issue. Uh, most of these lawsuits are within a particular state. Most of the states have reformed their malpractice law. At this point, medical malpractice runaway verdicts are mostly a regional phenomenon, mostly in the Northeast, because most of the 50 states have, in fact, adopted reforms. That's why um, you know, it's, it's 
um, wrong to argue that there can only be a national fix because we have already seen across most of the country the passage of legislation uh, bringing more balance to this area. So after all of this criticism from uh, many of us at Cato and elsewhere uh, that uh, they were marching in and overriding the doings of state courts uh, without uh, good enough ground in the Constitution or good enough uh, grounds in, in pragmatic uh, federalism, uh, they threw in an interesting uh, bit of language saying that uh, this would not apply to all medical malpractice cases, only to ones where there was federal involvement. And then you look at the list, and some of that is uh, federal involvement by being paid by Medicare or Medicaid uh, or by tax preferences. Now, uh, <clears throat> apparently the doctors are saying that uh, that's big enough since uh, all health insurance gets some sort of tax benefit. It's big enough to cover, what, 95, 98, 99 percent? Some vast majority of cases uh, would be covered. So part of it is um, it looks a little more like a fig leaf for uh, let's put in something that will keep the Federalists happy, uh, but uh, without very carefully uh, dividing the cases. Beyond that, from a standpoint of the uh, uh, the way the Constitution works as far as federal control of state courts and state governments, uh, you can't just wave a wand and say something has interstate commerce effect. I mean, we've often talked about this at Cato. Uh, but likewise, you may not be able to just wave a wand and say, uh, because the federal government did something to advance this transaction, we can step in three years later and order that the litigation over it be done in such a such and such a way. Uh, you might be able to attach rational strings to the party that you subsidized. If you sent the hospital a check, then you might be, be able to say, okay, the hospital has to behave in such a way should a dispute arise. You might say that if you paid the person's medical care, that they have to enter arbitration or maybe that they can't get more than you know, $300,000 in uh, pain and suffering damages. I mean, whatever well, that thing seem, you're That attaching, seems to be the central conflict, though, is that, that putting a cap on some sort of uh, damages uh, strikes at libertarian principle along a couple of different dimensions. Well, does it strike at libertarian principle, though? Because, uh, again, uh, if I were going into a uh, hospital and every single uh, dollar was being paid by some federal fund, and the, uh, the federal government said, look, we're paying for your medical care. Uh, we have found over the years that uh, if people can sue for $20 million in pain and suffering, uh, the pot gets emptied. Uh, the, you know, we cannot afford to pay uh, charity care uh, with a system that's being drained that way. Um, my conscience is not shocked by the idea that they might be willing to give me a benefit that has some limits to it. Um, it's, um, uh, you know, it, 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 that is the, um, uh, the logic of saying that the, uh, the payer can uh, help to control the cost of providing the product uh, as part of the transaction. What does, I think, bother us uh, is saying uh, that because I gave you a tax write-off or even because I paid the first dollar of the bill, that therefore the um, judge such and such in county court uh, who, of course, may never have received a check from the government, uh, has to not follow state law. Um, you know, how did the government get power over that judge as opposed to getting power over the patient? I don't know. I don't know how, that, how they explain it either. 
Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.